Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as part of an affordable housing announcement yesterday, Hamilton will receive $10.7 million from Ottawa. To explain the details, Minister of Labor and MP for Hamilton West, Philomena Tassi, joins the program. McMaster University released the findings of a review of black student-athlete experiences at the school. It found that there is a culture of systemic anti-black racism that is still persistent. We'll get all the details on that. And Canada has officially hit 10,000 deaths from COVID-19. Yesterday, the Prime Minister said the holidays are officially in jeopardy due to the rising cases. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, the Prime Minister made a rather large announcement uh, that's going to be good news for an awful lot of cities across the country as part of an affordable housing announcement yesterday uh, that's called Rapid Housing. And I can tell you right off the bat, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is pretty excited about it. Not a lot of tourism going on, so uh, they, they may very well be challenged. It may be a ripe opportunity to have a look at what's available out there and how we can turn them into long-term permanent housing. Something that we've been talking about uh, in Hamilton and in London. By the way, London always qualifies, too, for this, and we're going to talk about the numbers that are going to be involved. Uh, to that end, pleased to welcome to the program Philomena Tassi, who is the Minister of Labor and uh, Member of Parliament for Hamilton West Ancaster Dundas. Uh, Madam Minister, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us this morning. Thank you, Bill. Great to be here. Well, very timely, actually, uh, Philomena, because, I mean, you, you've heard the comments from Mayor Eisenberger, Mayor Tory, uh, Mayor Holder down in London. Affordable housing is, has been a long-going problem for the longest time, exacerbated, really, by what's gone on with the pandemic. Uh, so this is, this is good news for an awful lot of cities. Yeah, absolutely fantastic news, Bill. You know, for me, it's one of my top priorities. I know uh, Hamilton is, um, is a community where uh, I'm really proud of the number of organizations that are working so hard on this front for the affordable housing front to ensure that every, every Hamiltonian has a, a roof over their head. We know that this is extremely important and so uh, very pleased about this announcement. Uh, we should mention uh, dollar figures here. Hamilton, $10.8 million. Uh, London's going to get $7.5 million. Uh, maybe you could explain uh, exactly how this is going to work. My understanding is that there are actually two streams that they can draw from. Yeah, absolutely. So the first stream that you've just mentioned, the figures for Hamilton and uh, London, is called the city stream. So that money is guaranteed. The city just puts an application in and says, this is where uh, we want to uh, create this affordable housing. The second stream, and this is why it's uh, really important, uh, and I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to Hamiltonians about this. The second stream is called the project stream. And uh, it's what I mentioned at the beginning here, is I know in Hamilton we have so many groups. In fact, um, Bob Bertina and I, MP Bob Bertina, and I had a symposium early in March, and we brought together a number of local organizations that fight so hard for, for affordable housing and to combat homelessness. And I, at that symposium, I believe, Bill, there were 17 local organizations, uh, as well as the city and representatives from CMHC, all working in order to create safe, affordable housing for Hamiltonians. So this message goes out to them. The second stream is $500 million. It's a project-based stream targeted to most vulnerable populations. And the key here is this is a part of our overall national housing strategy, which is a $55 billion strategy. But the key here is that it's rapid. This housing is to be built in one year. 
And that may sound like a long time, but as you know, when it comes to building housing, that isn't a long time. So the three areas where the federal government is investing in order to make it rapid is modular housing. So that's housing that's built off-site and then brought in. So the purchase of land and the purchase of the modular housing units would be included in this. Conversion uh, opportunities. You know, there, there are uh, even commercial spaces now with the changing nature of work. Some commercial spaces are opening up, hotels, schools. If they can be converted into affordable housing units, that's exactly the type of project that would qualify. And then the third uh, tranche is the rehabilitation. So those, uh, um, you know, housing units that are there but need a lot of TLC, need renovations, need work, those are the three tranches that can be applied for with respect to this second project stream. And I want to see as much of this money come to Hamilton uh, as we possibly can. So it's a call to motivate, to energize uh, all those organizations out there that, uh, that have worked hard uh, on this really important issue to, um, to get in their applications. All right, let me kind of deal with these in reverse order if I could. I want to start with the rehabilitation aspect of this, which I find fascinating, uh, because just about every city does have some stock of quote-unquote affordable housing. Some of it, though, as you know, is inha- uninhabitable because of the it's been run down, it needs what could be a roof repair, could be any number of different things. Is this fund for them, for, for instance, for the city to be able to dip into to try to move those things back into into the stream again so they can be used? Absolutely. And this is about being fiscally responsible, right? So if you have an existing building that you know, for example, would need a certain amount of dollars to get it up to speed, we want to ensure that we're putting people in comfortable homes where uh, there's adequacy, where it's suitable, and that it's safe. And so that's exactly what that that stream is for. It's to say, listen, this investment is X dollars. It's a worthy investment. We have the building there. We don't have to start from scratch. We can do it quicker. And so this stream is for exactly the the uh, the type of situation that you've identified. So in a situation like that, then uh, I assume this is on a first come first serve basis. Then, well, the and okay, this is part of the rapid part. I'm glad you asked that. So applications are now open, and uh, and and uh, organizations can come forward. So for this second stream, provinces qualify, municipalities qualify. So do not-for-profit organizations, uh, indigenous-led organizations. They can put in their applications, and it's open for two months. So it will close at the end of December. December 31st is the uh, is the deadline for those applications to come in. The turnaround time is remarkable here. It's going to be one month. So the end of January, beginning of February, CMHC will make the determinations, and the determinations will be based uh, both on need and the vulnerable populations that are being served. And you said it at the beginning, Bill, when you talked about COVID-19 has really demonstrated the importance of getting people housed. Uh, Vulnerable populations are suffering. So if we can, um, you know, provide homes and houses as quickly as possible, uh, as fiscally responsible as possible, then that's exactly the investment that our government is making here. So where do they have to be in that process to, to be able to qualify? In other words, you know, if, if, you know, the first qualification here is need. <laughs> just what every town and city in the country can probably qualify in one way, shape, or form. But do you want, is, is this project ready? Do you want to get shovels in the ground ASAP? Yes, exactly. So these are, these are projects that we know can be built within one year's time. And so uh, any applications that come in would have to be able to make that criteria, which is why it's really important that we have the three available uh, 
uh, approaches, the modular approach, the conversion approach, the rehabilitation approach. But these are all projects that we know can be uh, built within a year. So I know the time is tight, but again, I give a shout out to all those organizations that are working so hard on this front. We have so many in the community. I don't want to name them because I know I'm going to leave others out. But when we, uh, when MP Bertina and I had that symposium, uh, you know, just the spirit in that room, it just it makes you so proud to be a Hamiltonian. So many people advocating hard and strong because we know that we want every Hamiltonian to have a safe place place called home. And that's exactly why this investment is so important. The government recognizes housing first is of extreme importance. It gives people the basis they need in order to get the start that they that uh, that will provide them with the opportunity to make the contributions to the community, to get a good start, to get jobs. But housing has to come first. And so that's why this uh, this investment is so very important. Uh, let's go back then, uh, as as we're doing the reverse order here, to to your first one, the major city stream, and we've, we've talked about those uh, funds that are allocated. Toronto, of course, at the top of the list, two hundred three million dollars. Montreal, uh, fifty six, and down the list it goes. Uh, as I say, Hamilton, ten point eight million, and uh, the city of London, uh, slightly less than that, uh, but seven, a little more, yeah, seven point five million dollars in situations like that. Now, is this a lump sum that's going to be given to the city, or does this have to be project specific? Is it to a maximum, for instance, of ten million dollars? Do they have to show the projects, or do they just get it and then make the allocation themselves? Well, let me say this. I, I have had a conversation with Fred Eisenberg. We're going to make sure we get that full 10.760585, which is the exact number and, that and has been sense? designated for Hamilton. But the process is that the, the um, Hamilton will put in a plan, and it will outline the various projects that it wants to put forward, and then uh, th- those projects will be looked at by CMHC and then be approved. So it's not the more rigorous process. It's a process that really, know, uh, that really sort of lends credibility to municipalities, knowing the projects that they, that they need, um, and they then have the opportunity to put forward, um, you know, all the projects that they think best uh, qualify and are most in need, again, for the most vulnerable populations. But having said that, um, you know, the mayor is also aware that they can also, in that application, add projects that would then access the second stream. And this is about Hamilton getting as much money as we possibly can. So the city can put in for the first stream, the $10.76 million, but then in addition, it can also add uh, other uh, uh, projects that they know are credible, that they really want to see come forward into the into the actual project stream. And then that project stream is also opened up to, as I've said, uh, not-for-profits uh, and other organizations so that they can put their uh, applications in as well. So you're looking at a situation, or at least you're leaving the possibility open, for, for instance, for the city uh, to partner with one of these other groups too, to do a joint project with some of these projects that they may have in mind. Yeah, and I think, Bill, that's extremely important. Look at we have in Hamilton strong advocacy in this regard. When I meet my fellow Hamiltonians that are leading these projects, I'm in awe, and I, I just have great gratitude and appreciation. It's the spirit of this community. We want to ensure everyone has housing, and we're going to work very hard to get there. So the city is very aware. When I talk about that symposium that Bob and I led uh, back in March, it was exactly that. It was bringing organizations together Um, And as I said, I believe there were 17 at that symposium. The city was there. CMHC was there. It was an opportunity for everyone to dialogue. And we brought in P.S. Adam Vaughn, 
who you know is the parliamentary secretary mm-hmm. to the Minister of Families, where this funding is coming from, in order to provide an overview and some insights. But this collaborative approach is really important. And one of the funding streams in the national housing strategy is the co-investment stream. And that's one that really encourages these partnerships. So, for example, the announcement we made with Indwell on James Street Indwell partnered with James Street Baptist Church. The Baptist Church has a worship space at the bottom, and then Indwell put affordable housing for uh, for seniors, for those with disabilities. And so th- this sort of partnership approach is really, really important. And it was one of the reasons why we called this symposium together, because we wanted to bring the expertise, the passion, the dedication in this community. And I have to credit two organizations took the lead, the YWCA and Indwell, to take on an approach that's called Hamilton is Home. They want to build 3,000 spaces, uh, affordable housing spaces. And so that collaborative spirit is really there, which feeds into a program like this. So this is why it's a great opportunity to be on your show, to be able to talk about this, to, uh, you know, encourage and energize and really take advantage of what we already have here in Hamilton. There was one line yesterday, I was, I was watching the, the Prime Minister's announcement, and you already mentioned uh, Minister uh, Hassan was there too, the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. Uh, and he said, and, and this is something that's totally uh, out of amazing, I mean, considering the fact that, you know, there's always a complaint about, well, the money doesn't get out the door fast enough. Uh, He said that the money will be there in the next few days. He didn't say weeks or months. Uh, This is, is, boy, would you say rapid housing? This is unprecedented for a government to get the money out the door to the cities, and not not for the other projects you talked about, but from the the major city stream. Uh, is remarkable, really, because you know that they've already got a list prepared. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, it's, you know, it's tapping into the work that the cities that we know have already done. They know where the priorities are. They have lists. They're looking for this funding. And it's that rapid piece that's so important. We know now as COVID uh, is upon us that, you know, the importance of having people housed is more important than ever. And vulnerable populations in particular are being hard hit. And so the faster that we can get these built in a responsible way, the better. And so that's been the the sort of method behind the madness of this approach, is to say, look, we know we have expertise. We know we have communities that have been working on the ground. Cities have a list of projects. And so we want to get this money to them as fast as possible so that we can get people housed as quickly as possible. Look, the national housing strategy that the federal government has uh, announced, that $55 billion strategy, is absolutely fantastic. And it shows the priority that our government is putting on housing. But this rapid piece is really, really important. And, And in fairness, a lot of people have said, you know, Phil, you need to get money out quicker, you need to respond quicker. And this is what our government is doing in response to those pleas. In Hamilton, to date... There's been over $60 million invested since 2015 from the federal government in housing. There's also a lineup of those that I know that are in in the CMHCQ. But what this does is really expedite a number of projects, and it's a response to the needs that we know are so real in communities. What if they don't spend all the money? You you said there's a one-year deadline here. Um, And, you know, Gives an example of Toronto, two hundred three million. What if they spend one hundred and fifty? Do they return the other fifty million? 
The idea is that the money would go back to a pool. I, I don't see that happening, Bill. I think everyone is going to be uh, so anxious to get this money. I think people want more money. I, for Hamilton, want to see more money, which is why I'm so imp- uh, impressed and happy about this project stream. I think it's a fantastic stream. Again, something that Hamilton can leverage because we have so many organizations that uh, that are ready and are willing to uh, to go forward and to move quickly. In terms of the actual spending, there is also a, a sort of a, a compassionate grounds case that if, in fact, the money hasn't been spent, you have the project, the bill just hasn't been completed by the time or there has been some delays, there is a little bit of room there to work with CMHC. You know, a project that just is, is off its feet but, but, you know, facing some obstacles and delays, there is that provision, but uh, the, the money that is earmarked will absolutely go towards this at the end of the day. It's not going to be put anywhere else. It's going to be put to uh, this rapid housing. Minister of Labor, Philomena Tassi, and of course the uh, Member of Parliament for Hamilton West, Ancaster Dundas, uh, giving us uh, uh, some of the details about this rapid housing project. Uh, Phil, thank you as, uh, as always for this. Really appreciate the time, and we'll uh, stay in touch as this uh, rolls out over the next few days. Thanks so much, Bill. Pleasure's mine. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, a report that has reviewed the experiences of black students in the athletic department at McMaster University has been released, and it has found a culture of systemic anti-black racism that is still persistent. Uh, a number of other uh, things that we want to talk about here. This is a, a, a pretty bleak-looking report, and uh, uh, McMaster University I, is to be given credit for at least exposing this and, and delving into this. But, uh, we want to get some reaction to the report itself and what's going to be happening going forward. Sean Van Conant is the Associate Vice President of Students and Learning and Dean of Students at McMaster University. Joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Sean, thank you for the time. Glad you could hop on with us today. Thanks for having me. You uh, described this report as a punch in the gut. Uh, explain your reaction to it. Well, it, it's, it was very difficult to read uh, about the experiences that some of our black student-athletes have had uh, some of the, and the impacts uh, that, that, that those experiences have had on them, uh, on their, their time at McMaster and, and how they, as they reflect back on their time, uh, that they, in some cases, did not feel like they were respected, like they belonged. It's absolutely not the type of environment that we want to create for for black student athletes or any any student or student athlete at McMaster, we should just mention, by the way, background to for the, the, those who may not be aware, uh, part of the impetus for this actually came from some concerns and some comments made by John Williams, a former Hamilton Tiger Cat player, and uh, Fabian Foot, uh, who played at McMaster, of course, and uh, played professional football with the Toronto Argonauts. Uh, and and I guess the assumption, Sean, was uh, this was not the first time that the administration had heard something like this. Uh, and you knew that this was you, you knew this was going to be an ugly report because there had been other situations like this uh, that have gone unreported. Some of them, and others that uh, some of the people who actually made the complaints felt that they didn't get the uh, the full shift from the administration. So uh, this was this was really op- turning a rock over and finding out just how ugly this was going to be. Yeah, I, when the when the uh, the items on social media you referred to came out in the summer, uh, it was evident that that we did need to dive right into it and and find out and and talk to anyone who wanted to talk to us uh and by us i mean we we uh, formed an independent uh task force and, and a lead reviewer from outside the university to to understand what what had been going on and we took a we, we went back as far as 2010 we uh took a 10-year snapshot to, to figure out what has gone on 
what hasn't been reported, what what has what's been attempted uh, to be reported, that, but has not been addressed effectively. And so I think we did get the unvarnished um, truth out of out of the report, and and so now it's we're up to us to to figure out how we move forward and move forward quickly to to remedy some of the things that have gone on and, and the issues that we have today. Sean, were you surprised by some of the findings included in this report? Um, you know, I think because of the revelations that came out in the summer, uh, I, I was, I guess you could say I was shocked by some of the things, although, you know, these are the types of things that as we, we learned more through the summer that, that we, we were going to read about these types of experiences. And I, I know, uh, uh, some of our, our black student athletes as well, and I had some conversations with them privately, and, and they they uh, told me about things they had heard, uh, or in some cases maybe experienced directly. So I, I knew I had a sense for what was coming. Uh, I think there's a an impact when all those testimonials are put together in one report. I think there are 15 pages. And that's in the in the heart of that report that that are the voices of our black student athletes. So I think the impact of you know you can read one incident, and we, every day we're reading something you know in, in the media around an incident that happened in in somewhere in society. But when you compile all those things together, that's where I think the, the largest impact is is just the accumulation of all those stories. Uh, twenty three current and seventeen former student athletes uh, spoke to the investigation. Another twenty seven current and former five former staff were also interviewed uh a sufficient amount i guess to get a pretty clear picture as to what's going on now i have not read the the, the report but i have read some of the overview of it uh and my first reaction to this sean is it's astounding that this is what's going on in a, a, a 21st century university a progressive university uh this sounds like something that you might hear about in the 1950s or 60s not in 2020 yeah, you know, I think, and I, I have to speak from a personally here from a uh, my my life was actually my background uh, in, was in sports. I played. I was a student athlete at Waterloo in basketball. I played on the mm-hmm. national team. Um, I've been in a lot of locker rooms, and I think generally, there in some sporting cultures, we we have we have work to do. We we have not moved along the path uh, in, at, at the same pace that a lot of the rest of society has. Um, and so I, I think that's something that we have to reconcile and, and, and acknowledge uh, is that, that there's work to be done within a lot of the sporting communities to understand that um, there's, there's sometimes backwards thinking and backwards behavior that goes on in, in locker rooms. Um, and, and that's something we have to fix. Uh, I, I don't think McMaster is... Uh, is isolated or the only ones that are in this boat. I think if you did an investigation of this type in a lot of different organizations, you'd find, unfortunately, you'd find similar things. Let me ask you, and, and maybe you can draw on your experience as a student athlete too back in the day, uh, because there was a, a great controversy some years ago about hazing at universities uh, and, and mm-hmm. some of the disgusting things that would go on there. Uh, and there was a movement by a number of universities, and McMaster was one of them, and, and many others, Western and London, uh, to, to curtail that and to do something about this. Do you get the sense in hindsight that, that maybe student-athletes uh, got a pass on that simply because they were student-athletes? Because it's obviously still happening. In terms of hazing, that they're getting a well. In other words, picking on one particular group, and I'm looking at some of the stories here. Uh, what well, they 
a group called, well, a game they used to play called Jailbreak, uh, where the white players dressed up as quote-unquote criminals with cornrow braids in their hair and, uh, and threw racial slurs and derogatory comments at the black athletes. Uh, if this, this is, like I say, this is not 1955, you know, Alabama. This is, this is Hamilton, Ontario in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sorry, you're, you're asking. Do, do student athletes get a pass? Do they get a bit of a, uh, do they get some slack cut for them simply because they are student athletes? They're different. Uh, no, actually, I, I don't think so. So, uh, you know, when, when our, when our mechanisms, when our processes work like they should, we actually have a, a code of conduct, you know, for a code of rights and responsibilities for our students. We actually, within that, hold our, is hold our student athletes to a higher standard. We're saying that when you're, even when you're off campus, because you're a student athlete, you represent the university. And therefore the behavior that happens off, even off campus is something that we are going to pay attention to. And, and if things come to light um, uh, around that behavior, we're going to address it. Whereas if you're a, a, a student who is not a, a student athlete, um, we're university is not in a position to police every single behavior that happens you know, at home, uh, off campus. So, in fact, our, our philosophy is that we need to hi- uh, hold our student athletes to a higher standard. Uh, the N word was used liberally, we're told, by uh, some coaches. Uh, let me ask you about that particular aspect of this. Uh, the, the, the reporting I've seen on this right now uh, talks about incidents, they don't name names. Uh, you, somebody in the administration must know some of those names, though. Uh, is, 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 is there going to be followed from this? Or are, are people going to be talked to? Are there going to be interviews about exactly what people said and what they did? And will there be disciplinary action there? Yeah, so the way it works, uh, and this has come up in, in several conversations I've had, so it's a good question. This review was intended to be a, a macro look at uh, the black student-athlete experience, what, what's... What, what has happened? What have you felt? What has the impact been? Now, of course, those 15 pages of testimonials point to specific incidents. Um, mm-hmm. Our process, whether it's related to this issue or others, we have, as do all big organizations, a discrimination and harassment policy. Uh, the way that works is if, if, if so let's take, um, uh, take any one of those incidents in the report. If the, the student athlete who has uh, told that that story, made those allegations, wishes to, they can make a formal complaint through our discrimination and harassment policy. And we're obligated to look at that and assign an investigator to actually interview witnesses, interview, interview uh, respondents, complainants, uh, develop a, a report with findings that says, well, the policy was, uh, brief, uh, there was a, a policy violation or not, and then appropriate outcomes are established, whether that be on the the lighter end, some education, whether it be a harsher consequence uh, regarding employment, those are all on the table. But that's a separate process, separate from this review, and it's driven by having a complainant who wants to file a formal complaint. Well, and to your point, I mean, this, as you say, it was a snapshot of over a 10-year period. I'm, I'm sure some people who may have been involved in this may not any longer be with the university, but uh, I guess that's going to be up to the people that are, are being adversely affected by this as to how far they want to pursue this. But to that point, though, Sean, one of the other points that I know you're aware of here, uh, members of the administration said they failed to show up for meetings or for some of the concerns that were addressed, and they felt as if oftentimes the complaints that they did make were not being taken seriously. How do you how do you shore that up? Yeah, so that came through in, in the report that we need to ensure that we have 
not only mechanisms that because we, we do have mechanisms to to file a complaint. There are a number of doors in the university that you can walk into to to talk to people. But we need to ensure that those doors they're, they're trusted. That if if someone walks in that door, they're going to uh, the, the the complaint or the allegation is going to be dealt with effectively. Um, and so we're one of the initiatives we're putting in place is to have things like a black student services advisor. Who, so for black student athletes, they can walk in that door and say, hey, I'm having this issue. Where should I go next? We're going to have, uh, there's a job already posted uh, for a senior advisor, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism that would report directly to me and be involved in all the student affairs uh, departments, including athletics and recreation. That's another senior level advocate for uh, black students and black student athletes. Um, so if there is an issue, that's another person who can advise them and help walk them through uh, a complaint process if that's appropriate. Um, and and we have a, a job to do to ensure that um, if a complaint comes to a coach in the future, so the, the thing that kind of brought this all to the surface uh, in the summer was that uh, the, these black student athletes have reported that they went to coaches, but nothing happened. And so we need to ensure that every single one of our coaches is aware of what to do when they receive a complaint um, and, and if we have all these door, any door that a student walks into with, with a, a concern or a complaint, we need to ensure that those people know how to handle it appropriately. Yeah, because I know that uh, at least one of the stories that I read there was a player who wanted to complain, but thought, boy, if I complain about the coach, I'm not going to get play, and I, right. I want to play. You know, you know, you're looking at, at, at possibilities of maybe moving on after that too. So it's, it's a real conundrum for many of them. What about the uh, the makeup of the department itself? I know that was addressed in the report as well, Sean. Uh, Thirty people, I guess, in the athletics department of McMaster University. Only four are black, and there are no black women. Uh, how do you address the diversity or lack thereof in that, within that department? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's, again, it's not to deflect any, any of our responsibility to take care of our business. It's, it's, uh, there was a report that CBC put out around countrywide, nationwide. It's, it's an issue in athletics around representation, and that was identified in the report. And so we've got a, a couple things at least that we need to do. One is on every hiring committee, we have to make uh, – uh, special efforts to make sure that the where we promote our our job opportunities uh how we uh evaluate candidates uh every aspect of the hiring process we need to ensure that we are uh we have a diverse candidate pool and that we are uh evaluating candidates in a way that um, we're getting the the best candidate and are and are able to diversify our our staff population another um problem we need to address is is ensuring that uh, young black individuals who have aspirations of being in coaching or athletics administration have an opportunity to get uh, to get a foot in the door and so we're part of our response plan is to establish an internship program um, we still have to work out the details but right now we're we're setting aside three full-time one-year positions for young uh, black individuals either on the administrative or coaching side that they would spend a year with the athletics department, get their foot in the door, get some experience under their belt. And whether they continue on with McMaster or whether they uh, find opportunities elsewhere, I mean, ideally we're able to keep some of them within McMaster, but uh, we see this as a broader responsibility to develop uh, young black talent who have aspirations of, of, of having a career in athletics.
But to that point, Sean, uh, given the, the, the concerns raised in this report, uh, is that going to alter the vetting system for those who would apply for jobs within this department now? Uh, I don't. Uh, I mean, I think we always want to be fair and equitable and, and evaluate candidates on a range of uh, skills and attributes uh, that, that are associated with the, the job description and the, and the qualifications needed. I think we, d- we need to make sure that the opportunity is well known and is promoted and is encouraged within communities that maybe traditionally we haven't uh, done a good enough job of, of making sure that those communities are aware that we want them here. Um, and so I'm not sure it's, it's necessarily altering how we vet. Uh, there's a, a step in there around um, how we cast the net as, as widely as possible to ensure that candidates from all backgrounds feel like they have a chance and an opportunity to, to be a part of the McMaster community. What about diversity within the uh, the athletic community itself? And I'm talking about the players that are recruited, uh, to student athletes that are recruited. Uh, there was some suggestion by at least one of the individuals here that maybe they don't do a, as good a job as they could to try to attract that that diverse student athlete. Yeah, that's that's a uh, as is the case with a lot of this uh, situation. There's complexity to it, but there's also we want to make it put some some concrete actions in place to to try to rectify it. So. Uh, one simple thing is we're establishing two, 10 new athletic financial aid awards. That's $4,500 each um, starting next fall and then adding 10 for, for four years. So we're going to have 40 new AFAs that are called athletic financial awards um, specifically for black student athletes. So that financial incentive will, will be one component. Um, I think as well, and this is the trickier thing to get at, uh, some sports, uh, you look around, some sports are, have, have, uh, predominantly one race versus another. Um, and so the, the sports that might be predominantly white, we have to make special efforts, uh, to figure out how we develop a talent pipeline there. And in some cases for a coach who has, uh, limited, uh, recruiting time and re- limited recruiting budget, if traditionally they have recruited, if their, their pipelines for talent, I've been to uh, a program X that, that for whatever reason is a predominantly white program, but that's where they get the most bang for their time in terms of um, getting athletes. There has to be a special effort made to say, no, well, I've got to make a special effort to go to these other programs where there's a bit more of a, a diversity of a student athlete and offer that opportunity to, opportunity to them to try to get them to come to McMaster and show them that there's a place for them here. That takes more time it takes more energy takes more effort and it may take years for that to to bear any fruit um but if you don't try to do something new you're gonna obviously you're gonna get the same result you always have and in some of our programs for different reasons uh we don't have a uh, diversity of, of student athlete in those programs well, you're absolutely right. This isn't going to turn around overnight. And uh, it's, uh, I suppose, rather interesting that uh, given the release of this report here, since uh, just about everything uh, in the way of athletics has hit the pause button now because of the pandemic, it gives you an opportunity, I guess, for a, a self-evaluation. Uh, congratulations on the, on the report and, and for actually having, you know, the, as a, the administration, to have the courage to go forward and do this. I know that others tend to sweep this stuff under the carpet and just pretend that it's going to go away someday, and it doesn't. Uh, you've addressed it head on, and uh, there's some pretty interesting recommendations in this report too, Sean, and uh, we're going to follow this as it goes along over the next little while as you guys address some of these. Thanks so much for taking the time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
Take care. Sean Van Conant, who is the Associate Vice President of Students and Learning and uh, Dean of Students at McMaster University. Uh, we will continue to keep what, abreast of what's happening with that story as the administration moves forward with some of those recommendations. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau addressed the nation, as he has over the last number of weeks and months, of course, about COVID-19. And uh, painted a rather bleak picture. We know that we're heading into the second wave. You know it's worse in Ontario and Quebec than it is in just about every other part of the country. And we know that uh, this is a rather depressing time. And uh, the Prime Minister addressed that yesterday. We could have a simple unified message. Everybody stay home. But nobody wants that. So we have a more targeted approach that provinces are designing, that the federal government is there to support the provinces on. And yes, it's more complicated, but it's also far less difficult and painful for all of us as a country it has been and uh it's it's getting awfully frustrating and i know there's a bit of cabin fever that's going on there's a bit of uh, trepidation about the virus itself and uh, a lot of trepidation about how long this is going to go on uh, joining us to talk about all of this is a uh, ketra schmidt who is an associate professor in the center for engineering and society at concordia university professor thank you so much for the time glad you could join us join us on the program today oh it's always a pleasure we are social beings. I mean, we like to interact. We like to talk with each other. We like to uh, have a drink together. We like to go to the beach together, whatever it is. Uh, we're not made to be this way where we're separate from each other. And, and I guess when this whole thing started back in March, uh, Professor, a lot of us thought, well, it's only going to be for a couple of weeks. I'm sure we can tolerate this. Uh, it's been a lot longer than that. And uh, you can see that we're getting a little afraid at the edges, can't you? Oh, definitely. I, I think for every single person, easier to have a short temper and flare up easier when it's been going on for so long and the end is not really in sight do you know what this reminded me of too as i've watched some of the stories over the last little while is i i don't think they do it anymore but i guess back in the 50s and 60s it's a scientific experiment they used to lock four or five people up in a pod for a period of sometimes weeks just to see how they would interact and what i guess it was at that time they were saying okay for space travel you're going to get stuck in a spaceship for a long period of time are they going to get to and it didn't always end well and it's not ending well the way things are going here now i don't want to dry that it's it's not an apples to apples comparison because we're not stuck in a pot i mean we do have amenities but we're we are stuck for a lot of us at home or even if we're not at home uh it's very limited as to what we can go who we can see and it it does have an impact on our psyche doesn't it Oh, absolutely. Uh, One thing that I'm grateful for is that the national parks and green spaces are still open here um, Mm -hmm. because of the first part of the lockdown, they weren't. So I think to some degree, there are kind of more targeted and reasonable restrictions in place that let us congregate outdoors. Halloween is still on here in Montreal. Like they've decided that trick-or-treating is still safe. Um, A lot of us are putting in candy shoots. so there, there are ways that we can still congregate outdoors, but as you said, winter is coming. And we're good at winter, but it's certainly harder to stay out all day um, in the winter than it is in the fall or summer. So, yeah, it's getting harder. Uh, but even in that regard, you're right. I mean, you know, the, we don't do the same things outside that we do unless you're a skier or something like that. That's fine. But a lot of our socialization in the wintertime is that in the workplace. You know, with those, that's our other family, right? And uh, we're not with them for the most part these days, too. So, I, I you know, when you t- start talking about a bleak outlook for the next four or five months, that's got to be part of it. I mean, you know, I've been working at home since the middle of March, and, uh, you know, I've, I'm developing a much closer relationship with my dogs, uh, but there's a whole lot of other people that, <laughs> that I haven't seen for a long, long time. And as, as human beings, you miss that contact. 
Absolutely, and I also think when there is stress or um, kinds of things that you could sort of have a natural conversation in person with someone, you can't right now. You have to already be kind of close to reach out and text someone and say, can you believe this is happening? You know, it's a, it's a kind of a dangerous thing to do, and it's not if you're all together. So there's kind of workplace cohesion, the water cooler stuff that they talk about that you lose when you work from home. Now that everyone's from home, it's really much harder. What is it about the human nature that, that we start to say, I'd of hell with it? Uh, you know, in, when the first lockdown happened, and it was just around the time that I started working from home, I guess, around the middle of March, uh, there was an awful lot of compliance. I mean, people thought, hey, this is this is serious stuff. I'm going to wash my hands 15 times a day. I'm going to social distance if I have to go out anywhere. I'm going to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at least nine, meter, nine feet away from somebody. Uh, I'm going to well, we didn't all wear masks in those days, but that was partially because we didn't have enough of them. But we 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 played by the rules, and it and it seemed to work by and large. I mean, you know, we, we did better than a lot of other countries did. But I'm getting a sense now, Professor, and not a lot of people are saying, "I've just had enough." I know it's not the right thing to do, but damn it, anyway, I'm going to have 25 people over to the house today, or you know, I or whatever. I mean, just just you know, thinking it, I, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, um, I, I get that sense as well, that there is sort of a, a real fatigue with compliance. And the other part that I think is um, happening is that some of us have a different level of amenities at home, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, And that difference can be something like your family size, right? I have three kids where it's exci- and a dog. It's very exciting here. Um, but if you live alone or your parents with a single child, um I think I think it's a really different experience for that, but it's also more about social inequality, right? That some of us have backyards and some of us have more bedrooms and more rooms in the house. Like these things also make a difference when we are stuck at home. Internet accessibility. So I think there's a lot of um, some of the fraying and some of the places where you see higher caseloads have to do with who's at risk, who has to go to work, mm-hmm. how much, how crowded their living situation is, and if people are getting caught sort of breaking rules, sometimes that has to do with, you know, how much access to capital or access to space they have. So I think, there's a, I think COVID has really um, made a lot of existing inequalities more visible. Yeah, it's it's underscored an awful lot of stuff that uh, you know we just didn't pay a whole lot of attention to, I guess, on a daily basis. Uh, but now we're 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 face to face with some of these things, and I guess we we're being forced to deal with it, which adds to the angst, I guess, for some people. Uh, you know, to to that inequality and things of that nature. How do you battle something like that? I mean, you know, it's the wrong thing to do. You know that uh, you know you've got to continue with the pro the COVID protocols that are going on uh, to force yourself to do this. Uh, and at the same time, understand that this is going to be a while. I mean, part of the prime minister's message yesterday uh, was that, look, at you know, this the, the, their help is on the way. There probably is going to be a vaccine, but it's not going to be till spring. So we're going to have to get through this winter. And uh, we haven't gone through a winter with this, really. Uh, you know, the, the worst of our first wave, of course, was really March into April, which is the end of winter, the beginning of spring. Uh, so we're, I guess a part of this here, I guess, is, is fear of the unknown. We don't know how bad it's going to get. Well, and to me, it's, I'm less worried about non-compliance and more about mental health, you know, yeah. the kind of stresses that happen to people when they are working at home. And, I mean, it's sort of funny when you talked about the work family, the people who are in some sense most at risk are the essential workers, people mm-hmm. who are having to go to work with the public every day. Um, 
so that's another kind of stress. So certainly we're blessed when we're able to work at home, but it is it's sort of an interesting trade-off in who kind of gets that social interaction. If it's a wanted social interaction, we're sort of all missing the kinds of social interactions that were fun. And I mean, I think Trudeau really summed it up pretty well with that one sentence. Yeah, it does suck. I mean, there's no no, no two ways about it. Uh, and, and you know, as you mentioned, you know, Halloween is this Saturday, and and some jurisdictions are, well, you know, the premier's already said in some of the hot zones in Ontario and Toronto and Ottawa, he'd he'd rather they didn't do it. You know, they're going to do it anyway, at least to a certain degree. Uh, but it's frustrating, and you know, a lot of us sacrificed at Thanksgiving. Uh, we didn't have the large family gatherings we ordinarily would have had. And uh, I remember the, the, the address he gave that day, uh, just before Thanksgiving. Remember that one, Professor? He said, you know, we've lost Thanksgiving. You know, we still got a shot at Christmas. Now we're looking at Christmas and saying, I don't know if we do, uh, because of the way the numbers are going right now. And that only adds to the angst. I mean, Christmas is Christmas, and we're going to want to have some semblance of, of, uh, of ordinary activity, I guess, over the Christmas holidays. Uh, and we're kind of wondering whether or not that's going to happen, too. So it's it's it's... it's it's, I, I don't want to paint a black picture, but, I mean, it's it's not encouraging. We know there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's way down there, and we've got a lot of ground to cover before we get there. And I think especially you're saying all this, and I'm thinking about uh, my parents and my in-laws, and, you know, they're on the other side of the border. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but older people are going to be that much older, and this is a lot of critical time that's missed. So, this is, yeah, it's really hard. That's an interesting point. I, I, an athlete that I know was saying that very same thing. Obviously, a lot of the sports have been shut down or curtailed or, to a certain extent. Uh, and he says, even when we go back, he says, we're all a year older. And, and it's almost as if, you know, we just fast forward. We just lost a year of our lives because we're not doing what we ordinarily do. And uh, and, and that's kind of surreal, too, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really tough, right? Um, you think about all these sort of critical, I mean, right, right, I... I, what you do and what I do, we, we get to sort of work at home, and we also get to work more or less forever, um, right? But it's we're not relying on our bodies to be able to do it. So it is really difficult for athletes and you know, even for kids and kids' activities. There are kind of critical moments where you can get a kid into something, right? And it's kind of really important to have them have a passion, and we're missing all those things right now. So what do we do? How do we how do we try to mitigate the uh, the, the the impact that it's having on us? And uh, and you brought up earlier the fact, especially during the nicer weather, the fact that uh, a lot of the green spaces were opened up. Uh, getting out of the house when you possibly can and, and exercising. We've known that for years now, haven't we, Professor? That that physical exercise really is is a great asset toward mental health. Right. So my hope is that things stay open. Right. So um, things like. Cross-country skiing. Downhill skiing is a little tougher because you're often going inside, but, you know, you can you can actually not go inside, right? So, yeah. Um, and, but like cross-country skiing, there's no reason not to have that, right? You're really pretty far from people. Downhill skiing too, right? So there, there's definitely things you can do where you're in, in nature, you're outdoors, you don't have to be very close to people. Um, I'm really hoping that we get to keep those things. Um, I also feel like more internet access for everyone, right? There's a huge inequality in people's internet and um, cost of internet, access to internet. So I think, and even having devices, right? So here we have all in-person schooling, um, but there are a lot of 
after-school activities that are still available online and not everyone has access to them. I think there are some targeted policies that we could consider to increase people's ability to access some of these things that would maybe have a slight mitigation for mental health. I don't well, know. Yeah, really now, a substitute to being a person. No, no that's, and that's the, that's the whole thing. I mean, you know, I, I know people are doing Zoom calls and everything else, but it's not the same uh, as, as that, that physical contact, being in the same room with somebody. Uh, and sharing that and uh, and I mean we even notice this in what I do for a living I mean you know I, I obviously because of logistics I mean not everybody we can talk to I don't expect you to fly into Hamilton every time we want to do an interview or me to go to, to, to Concordia uh, so we do this over the phone but I'd like having studio guests in there because you've got eye contact and and, and you know the, the, you can read body language and things like that and it's, it just makes for a more intimate in, it's a situation and we can't do that anymore uh, and Zoom calls are the same way. I mean, you're looking at a screen with seven other heads there. Uh, you know, you're not really talking to somebody. You're just talking to the screen. And uh, imagine I, I, teaching. I have. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. How do you do? How do you do that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, I, I I was saying uh, just yesterday. You know, we are in a suboptimal situation. This is deeply suboptimal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you think about a year of your life lost. We can't let undergraduate students lose a year of their education we have to do our best for them you know so that they can move forward with their careers and i'm holding out a little hope that the economy is going to be able to support them um but this is you know another thing i don't want them to lose right so their ability to get access to education but it's it's imperfect but to your point, I mean, Premier Legault and, and Premier Ford here in Ontario, both pretty much on the same page as far as that's concerned, uh, is the last thing they want to do here is a shutdown. I mean, that that's the worst-case scenario. Uh, and I think they're both of, of the mind that, look, at targeted areas or reduced usage of some of those targeted areas is probably the better way to go uh, because just shutting everything down uh, – you know, there may be some some validity to that, I guess, from a, a you know the idea of stopping the spread. But it, it, we've been doing this for so long right now, we're going to have to find a balance someplace. Yeah, I mean, so in terms of targeted reducing uh, population in targeted areas, here one thing we've seen is that the large sort of frequented natural spaces, they will sometimes reduce parking lot capacity yeah. or they'll put a police officer to say, nope, that's it. No one else can come in today um, to kind of reduce crowding. Because there certainly are popular places, places by the water that I've gone and I've thought, no, I don't want to be here. This is too many people, even if it's outdoors. Well, we'll see how it plays out over the next little while. Uh, the Prime Minister's uh, warning was rather ominous, but he did say, look, at if we follow the rules and, and do the social distancing and wear the masks, uh, it's, it's going to mitigate the impact. And before you know it, it'll be April and, uh, you know, there'll be a, vi- or a, a vaccine and everything will be fine, or so we think anyway. Uh, always a pleasure, Professor. Thank you so much for the time. Please stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Okay, you too. Good talking Bye. with you. That's uh, Professor Kepter Schmidt, of course, from uh, Concordia University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.